our look at the Gospel of Luke, and today we have moved into the 18th chapter. And so we are going to look at the first eight verses of Luke chapter 18. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke says this, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my accuser. For a while he refused. But later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On earth. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that on this beautiful autumnal morning that you would be with us. Speak to us. Open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, I know that going through a book like we've been doing through Luke, uh, what John Calvin calls uh, Lectio Continua, I know it can be a little bit tedious at times, right? It's the same book week after week after week. But one of the brilliant things about doing that is it really helps us to be able to see whatever it is that we're doing, whatever the passages we're talking about within the larger context uh, of the book and where we are. And that's certainly the case here. It's important that we remember what we've been talking about of late. We've been talking about uh, the kingdom of God. Last week we said that the now but the not yet. What does that mean? That Jesus has come and so in some way, as we saw last week, you know, uh, Jesus said, well, if you're looking for the kingdom of God, Pharisees, it's, it's, it's basically right here in front of you. But at the same time, as we look around at our world and as we look inside of our own hearts, we realize there is still sin and brokenness. And so we know that not all is there, that the kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullest fruition. And so we live in this now, but the not yet, but we don't like this tension. And so as we said last week, some of us just make uh, the now kind of a very highly individual, personal thing. And we think, well, the rest of the world is just going into the theological hell in a handbasket, so who cares about that? And, and so that's how we relieve the tension. But probably the temptation for most of us is to relieve that tension by just not even thinking about the not yet. We just engage in the present. All we think about is the present. And that's just 
kind of, we go around, we do our daily life, and sometimes it's consciously, sometimes it's subconsciously. We just don't even think about it. It's too hard to live into that tension of waiting for the coming kingdom of God. And it's in the very middle of this context that Jesus tells this parable, right? In fact, Luke says he tells this parable so that they would pray always and not lose heart. So it begins with a judge. I love this judge. This is very matter-of-fact. This is one of the most matter-of-fact parables I think that we have. There is a judge, and this judge does not give a rip about God or about anyone else, right? He does not care. This is not really a good dude overall, right? As uh, one commentator says, he's immediately kind of gone against the double command. What are the two most important commands Jesus said to love God and to love our And does this judge care about either of them? No, not at all, right? And this is not really the kind of judge that you want because the judge that you have, you want the judge to kind of buy into the community and into the community's norms and and values. You want them to care about people, right? You don't want some capricious judge who's just like, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I want because that's how great I am. And this is kind of the judge that we have. And all of a sudden, you go from this very powerful, hyper-independent judge, and all of a sudden, we're introduced to whom? A widow, right? Are you guys watching the game on your phones? A widow! (laughs) And you have a widow, right, who's known. Widows were known, of course, for being vulnerable, for being highly dependent upon others, right? So you have these two comparisons, but what we also know about this widow is that she is persistent. Every day she walks in, I want justice, and the judge doesn't hear, doesn't listen. I want justice, the judge doesn't listen. I want justice, the judge doesn't listen. On and on And on and on. But while the judge may not be a good person, he is at least somewhat self-aware. And I love how he just kind of repeats what we already know about him, right? And he just says it flat out. I have no fear of God and I have no respect of anyone. But then he goes on. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. Now, this is great, and you get the sense of what's what's happening here by the way this is phrased, but this is what's wonderful. In the Greek, that's not exactly what it says. In fact, in the Greek, what it says, this is actually this Greek word, it's, it's a boxing phrase. Okay, it's a word used for the, of wear me out as a boxing phrase. And it more literally means to give someone a black eye. So isn't that great? You have this widow, right? Can you just picture you have this widow, you have this powerful judge. And this judge is like, she is going to give me a black eye. This widow is just like, boom, boom, boom. Just keeps punching again and again and again until finally she gets what I want, right? What she wants. This is this almost, as some say, and I think rightfully so, this comedic picture, right, that you should remember. This would have stood out, just this widow just punching this capricious 
judge. This is the image we have of what's going on here. And Jesus then says, okay, if even this judge who doesn't care about God or anyone else, if even he is going to give to this woman what she wants, surely God will do this and even more. This is a parable, they call it kind of an a even more than parable, right? Like if even this judge is going to do this, then how much more will God do that for you? But I, I also, this is just a brief caveat, but I, I want us to hear, because I think whenever we get glimpses of the humanity of Jesus, it's important that we listen because we oftentimes just overlook it. I, I want you to hear Jesus then say at the very end, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I don't think he says this in any kind of angry way. I, I actually think this is kind of a tender question that he has to wrestle with. Because as he looks around at those who are surrounding him, at those who are following him, and he knows the difficulty of staying Faithful. He is genuinely perhaps wondering, will there still be people here following and waiting for me to return? Now, I want us to talk about prayer, as Emil already said. Thanks, Emil, for ruining that for me. Um, but before so, I want to say this thing, because I, I think it's easy for us to drive by this, but I think it's important. I want to just stop for a moment. I think it's very intentional that Jesus uses a widow. And on the one hand, as we've already said, it's because of this juxtaposition. We know that widows were very vulnerable. And in Scripture, it's very important for us to take care of widows, right? Why did the deacons, the whole office of deacon, why did it begin? Because there were Greek widows or yeah, who were not being taken care of. So they started all of these deacons to take care of of them. What does James say? The book of James, he says, pure religion is to take care of orphans and widows. Okay, so we know, we know that this is really important. So you have this highly critical thing, right, right where, where, where Jesus is wanting to say, remember the widows. But here's what else I think. I also think that Jesus brings up this widows because widows are not just kind of vulnerable people who need to be loved and cared for. Widows are also remarkably strong and strong-minded and strong-headed in many ways. In the Gospel of Luke, we see this. We see it in chapter 2. We see it with the prophetess Anna. She is lifted up. Why? Because she was always praying and fasting. And, and, and when this happened, remember, she saw Jesus. Jesus was a baby. And she could tell as she looked at this baby that something was going to be different. Right? She was surrounded still by all of the oppression, as we said last week, of the Romans, by, by all these things, by poverty. And yet, when she looked at Jesus, she could tell this widow something's going to be different about him. Something's going to be changed because of him. Or in uh, Luke 4, Jesus brings up the widow of Zarephath. The widow of Zarephath, if you've forgotten, right? I'm sure most of you haven't. But if you've forgotten, this was the one who, uh, uh, who, who, who uh, helped to feed in the middle of a famine the prophet Elijah. And in the middle of this famine, when she really had no food, she trusted him and said, Okay, I will make this food even though my son and I have nothing. In fact, literally what she had just said was that, was that I am making one last meal so that then we can 
can die. But she trusted him to say, okay, things maybe be able to be different. And so this widow was there and said, okay, I'm going to trust this. And this widow then today in chapter 18, once again, what is she doing? She is punching above her weight. Almost literally, right? She is saying, no, I am not going to take no, right? Can you imagine every time she kept going back, right? Maybe she went back to her house and they said, oh, you tried again. What are you, a fool? And every time she walked in to talk to the judge, can you imagine what they would have said? Oh, my goodness. What are you, a moron? He's going to say the exact same thing. But dadgummit, that widow walked in there and she said, I'm going to keep Punching again and again and again until I get the justice that is needed. And one of the things I want you to hear this morning is this, that widows have been and continue to be the backbone of the church. Widows are remarkable in the ways in which they pray. No offense, But it is by far widows who come up to me and say, we have been praying for you and for your family. You know how many 50-year-old men are coming up there and saying that to me? But these widows are getting on their knees, sometimes literally in order to pray. It's widows who so often give generously. They put the rest of us to shame. It is widows who share of their time again and again. You walk through these doors almost every day of the week. You will see a widow who is giving. And I mean certainly widows literally, but I also mean widows of those who perhaps have had the death of a relationship and who are divorcees and who are continuing to give. Or even what we call sometimes worship widows, which are, which are, are women who come in because their husbands don't want to uh, come in here to worship. Whatever it is, widows are remarkable gift to the body of Christ. And so as I was reading over that and reading some things this week, I realized that one of the things, even before we get to prayer, I simply want to say, we need to give God praise for the widows that are in our midst and with who are continuing to punch and punch and punch and saying nobody is going to stop what God is doing. And though I may be grieving, though I may be in pain at times, and though I may be at loss, I am going to continue to give and they are a gift. Amen? Now let's get to prayer, Emil. So why is it that we need to pray? And what is it that makes this woman so remarkable? And why is it so hard to keep going? Jesus wanted to make sure that we did not lose heart. It is hard for us to not lose heart when we are living in the midst of evil and brokenness and sin and pain. I appreciate Tom Long. He said, you know what, look, this is clearly, sometimes we think, well, it's because we've been waiting for so long and that's why it's really hard and there's so much going on here and we have other things to do. We're busy, much busier than they used to be, which is not really true because they actually had to, you know, work for food and so they were constantly working But the good news is this, is that Jesus knew even then how much of a challenge this is to continue to believe in the midst of silence. And what we also know 
because we read the Psalms, is that the Psalms also speak to this constant silence. In fact, much of the Psalm is this kind of screaming out to God, right? We can see this, I could do a lot of them, but let's just look at a few here. Psalm 10 says, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or this next Psalm 77, has God's steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Or this one, I love this one from Psalm 44. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? And why do you forget our affliction and oppression. These are prayers from the psalmist. And, and, and as someone has said, the good news is this, that the psalms continue, right? That they feel this, they have this brutal honesty of where is the silence, and, but yet they keep going. Even though perhaps their hearts are lost in some ways, they lose some heart, they keep praying nonetheless. They just Keep praying. And we have to keep praying in the midst of this now, but not yet. And one of the things that this passage helps us to begin to see is this. What we've been saying, we talked about this when it comes to death. We talked about, we talked about this when it comes to the coming of the kingdom of God. What is very difficult for us to actually believe is that anything will ever change. We tend to believe that what always has been will continue to be. And that is even more so when you're just caught up in the present day and we do all these things. And we just, you know, go about this. We think, oh, there's not really going to be peace. When is there really going to be wholeness? Because all we hear about are wars and all we see is sin and brokenness. Maybe you as a person, you just keep sinning, right? You're like, hey, okay, I'm going to pray over this thing. And then oh, it happened again. I'm going to do this. Okay, it happened again. And there's all of these things. So it can be very easy to think what has always been will always be, which is why I was fascinated by this uh, um, uh, commentary this week by Margie Dawn. Because here's what she says about prayer. She says this. She says, prayer is about refusing to believe that the way things are has to be the way they will be about imagining how the world could be and gaining the wisdom and the energy to bring it about. What is prayer about? Refusing to believe that the way things are has to be the way they will be. This is why we see this widow, right? She refused to believe that the no to justice, the no to justice, the no to justice was the only possible way. She began to believe that there could be something different. And no matter the silence that she continued to hear, she kept doing this act of Prayer. This is why Richard Foster in his uh, book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, when he talks about prayer, he says that one of the things that prayer does is it cultivates our imagination. Prayer, when you begin to spend time in prayer, you begin to imagine a world different than the present day. A step part of that is just simply stopping everything else you're doing. And creating that space. But it is also about beginning to imagine. And this is great, right? Because he says, you know what? This is why children are so important. This is why our covenant children are so critical. Because they have great imaginations. Our imaginations as we get older tend to get worse 
and worse. We tend to grow more and more cynical. And you can hear it sometimes, right? I mean, a kid comes in, and he's like, oh, man, I can't wait. When I grow up, I want to be a professional football player. And we're like, good luck with that. Not a chance, you know? Oh, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. You know how hot that is? You're never going to do that. Oh, when I grow up, you know what? I want to do what I can to try to bring peace to things. Like, (laughs) oh, little child. We patronize them, right? We have no sense for that. Nope, the way things always have been, just wait till you have a few more scars on you there, little kid. This is what we do, right? But prayer is this act of saying it does not have to always be this way. The people who change things for the coming kingdom of God are not people who think what always has been must always be. And there's a sense that praying is this imaginative act of saying, no, things can be different. I was reading this um, uh, prayer this week, and I'm not going to do the whole one, but I love the way it ended. It's this Franciscan kind of benediction, actually, because I like this last sentence. Here's what it says. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor again remember this widow you know that she was hearing from others who were saying it cannot be done what she did is she had a childlike imaginative foolishness that comes only when you, not when you, not when you simply immerse yourself in all that is right now. You will never have that kind of imagination. But when you commit yourself to prayer, then you begin to imagine things that are different than what they are. And what this allows us to then do is what I want to suggest is this kind of second part of prayer that we see here, which is the sense of being able to then actually walk this prayer out right this woman i mean i think it's a reason why jesus brings this up it's not just that she was hoping she's also walking in to where the judge is every day she is giving that prayer if you will some legs and this is what is important is that a part of prayer is both creating this imagination of what can be and then beginning to say what role do we play in this Uh, Eugene Peterson, I like just to say that name because I can see your eye rolls. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, he talks about uh, when he was learning Greek, right? This is going to get even more exciting. And he talked about how he struggled with the middle voice, right? You know what I'm saying? The middle voice. What is the middle voice? Well, he says, look, here's the reality. In most of our world, we, we know two voices. We know the active voice and we know the passive voice. This is what we use. What's an active voice? An active voice is when you do something to someone. So the widow is punching the judge, right? That's very active. The passive voice is this. The judge is being punched by the widow, right? We're just receiving it, okay? And he says, but the middle voice, this is this weird voice that we hardly ever use. And it's both when we are doing something and when something is being done to us at the same time. And he says, this is what prayer is. You know, active prayer, he says, that's, if it's only active, that's kind of like this prayer where you, he says, it's more like a pagan prayer where you think you can manipulate and control God. I'm going to pray and God's going to do exactly what I want. And then passive prayer, he says, it's kind of like you just kind of, you know, we, we, we just pray, we just kind of slump our shoulders, say, well, you're a capricious God, maybe you'll do this, maybe you won't, I don't know. But it just, you know, it's just going to happen. Can you get it? You guys ever pray like that? Whatever. 
So here is what Peterson says. Peterson says this. He says, we neither manipulate God, active voice, nor are manipulated by God, passive voice. We are involved in the action and participate in its results, but we do not control or define it. Right? So prayer is this remarkable way that we get to participate in God. We are actively praying, right? We are praying for this imagination, and then God gives that imagination to us. And then we pray, Lord, help us with this to bring justice, and then God shows us the way in which we are then called to walk, to give that prayer some legs, and to begin to move toward, let's just say, justice in this case. This is the remarkable thing about prayer. It allows us to participate in the kingdom of God. So I was reading about this a little bit more, and I decided this week to take a look at Philip Yancey's book on prayer. It came out, I can't remember, a few years ago, I think. And so I, I, I was reading it, and um, this, is, this is really true, and it, 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 he, he started telling a story about Romania. And I thought, well, that's cool, right? Because uh, we have Emil, and, and he's from Hey, good job. I was just about to ask you what the score is, but I don't have to do that. Good. All right. From Romania, right? And so, you know, sometimes uh, Christians, you know, sometimes they use a little hyperbole. So you had this book, and he tells this great story. I'm like, is this really true? You know, I mean, sometimes I can be a little skeptical. So I said, I'm going to bring this book with me, and we're going to have lunch, and I'm going to have him read it and say, is this true? And so that's what we did, right? Yeah, thank you. And so... So we'll make sure they're right. And he's like, yes. And in fact, he said, you know, as, as, as he began to tell the story, he's like, you know what? Not only is it true, he's like, I was actually there, which is pretty cool. And so the story is this. He, there's a couple things that, that maybe Yancey got a little bit wrong, right? Just a little bit. But mostly it was good. Okay. So this was in the 80s, right? 1980s, uh, obviously. Um, Shushesko, as, as, as Emil's already brought up, right? He was in control, not a good leader uh, 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 in any way. Communism was still there, uh, and so there was this pastor, this local pastor, uh, and, and, and the church had kind of grown some, and, uh, and he was not a communist pastor, right? So there was a certain amount of danger in that. In fact, the officials were going to come, and they were going to move him someplace else, uh, Emil said, because of the fact of the way that he was preaching, and they didn't want him there anymore, so they were going to move him. But then there was this group of people from the church who they went, when they heard that, that, that uh, they were going to come to his house, they went and they held, they did like a, a candlelight vigil. Now, look, they held like this, these candles. Now, for us, Emil was telling me this. Yancey didn't say this. But for us, like, you know, you hold up a candle someplace, big deal. For them, this was almost kind of a life or death kind of thing, right? I mean, this is a big deal because it's a sign that you are revolting against the government. And so they did that, and then there were some others who kind of came to do that. Well, eventually, uh, uh, um, the authorities did get there, and they went, and, they, and then they took them uh, to the, uh, I think, to the police station. And so all of a sudden, then, there were more people who began to gather, in fact, over the next few days, uh, Yancey says, uh, they got somewhere between one and 200,000 people who began to gather. And then, Yancey says, a local pastor, and as I was saying this to Emil, Emil said, that was actually my boss. This guy's name is Peter. And in fact, our own Dave Gall met this Peter, right? So there's Emil. He's 18 years old then. What are you now, 60? No, so he's 18 years old. And this is what I love. So, so, so the pastor got up and he, he said three, you know, kind of revolutionary words. Let us pray. And as Emil was telling me this, he said that the, 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 the 100,000 or so, whoever they, they all got down on their knees. 
And I appreciated this because it's been like 30-something years, but Emil was still, you could, the tears were welling up as he began to think about this momentous occasion. And then they all said the Lord's Prayer together. You remember a part of that prayer, right? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that from there, from, 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 from Timisoara, then it began from the town, then it began to kind of slowly go, all of a sudden then it was in Bucharest, right? And it elicited, and this is what Emil said. Emil said, you know what? This, this revolution, this just justice against this tyrannical government, he said it could have started anywhere, but it started with the church. And it started with this remarkable prayer that Emil was at as a part of this. And see, this is what prayer does. Prayer says we can imagine, right? It's easy for us. I think it's hard for us to imagine. But, but when you've been there, you know, and there's just been year after year of this kind of tyrannical government to just think, well, what has always has been, you know, will always be. And yet they began to say no. And they began to pray. And they began to a picture that things could be different. And then they gave it legs. This is the beauty of prayer. It can begin to change the world. Yancey, in the same book, he has this image of what this looks like for us to participate in God's kingdom through prayer. And the image is of a child helping out a parent with their chores. Now, as soon as I heard that, I immediately uh, thought about my uh, daughter's uh, who, uh, four daughters, and they, they love, one of the greatest things they love to do is to help their mom out when she's cooking dinner, right? And if you've ever kind of, you know, if you have kids, you know that they love this, and they, so they'll ask her, hey, mom, can I, can I help you? And, you know, and, and let's be honest, whenever a kid is helping you, it's really not helpful. Right? I mean, it's, it slows everything down. It's very messy. You know, I mean, it's hard to say yes to that question, honestly. But Megan will say, yeah, okay, all right, come on. And so then you're like trying to figure out, well, what's something we can have them do? You know, oh, I, I need some milk out of the refrigerator. Okay, and they go, they get it out of the refrigerator. And, oh, I need this stirred, you know. And so then they kind of stir it. And then you come up behind when they're not looking and actually stir it, you know. And, and oh, you know, well, let's see here. We need a little pepper. Can you put a little pepper in there? Okay. And, and they do all these things, right? And so they're kind of, you know, they're, they're doing something, right? But when we gather together, you know, the six of us, we sit around that table. It, they don't have to say a word. And you can tell which one of the kids helped with dinner because they are glowing, right? Now, they do tell you because, of course, you know, I mean, they're very proud of themselves, you know. Hey, guess who helped with dinner tonight? You know, like, oh, good. What was it that you stirred? Because I don't want that, right? I mean, but it's like, oh, that's good, you know. And they're so excited, right? And they just like know that they, that they helped, that they participated in this. And it's true. And Yancey says, this is, this, is, this, is, this is the way it is with God. God. God could bring justice without us. God could do his work here without us. But God longs for us to be a part of what is going on in this world. It's, it's difficult it's more costly to him. And yet, you see, when we begin to participate, when we begin to pray, when we begin to walk those prayers out, when we begin to do that all of a sudden then, right? Remember what Luke says in Luke 13? That they will then come from the north and the south, from the east and the west in order to gather around the table at God's feast. 
You see, we, as we participate, as we pray, as we walk those prayers out, we are bringing those things here to the table when God's kingdom finally comes in its fullness. What this means is that those parishioners in Romania, when they were standing there with candles, when they were making this bold play for justice, I'm going to guess there were some widows that were there. That they are bringing that as a part of the meal to the feast at God's kingdom. Anytime that you bring a literal food, let's say to somebody who is grieving, maybe a widow or a widower, when you are bringing that food, right, you will see in some sense, it seems to me, that same meal when we gather around at the table. Whenever you tell someone who cannot believe that Jesus can actually forgive them, that Jesus would ever love them, whenever you tell them, no, 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 Jesus loves you, you know what you are doing? You are bringing something else for the feast at God's kingdom. Whenever you decide to say or have a hard conversation about racial reconciliation, right? Whenever you are, are there and willing to have these difficult conversations in a world that will oftentimes say, oh, there can be no peace. There's no hope for this. You are bringing something else to the table. Whenever you are generous to somebody and you are saying, hey, we know this poverty that maybe is generational poverty, but we are going to help equip you. We are going to begin to change what that looks like. You are bringing something else to the table. Whenever it is that you help teach a child, you may never see this child again, but you very well may come to the table and you will recognize that child from long ago and you will know that you had a part with them being around the table. See, this is the image that we have. This is what prayer does. It participates in the coming kingdom of God so that when we come, we are bringing those things and we come and we are glowing and God is glowing because we have been a people who have persisted in praying and who have kept the faith and who have kept following Jesus and kept seeing opportunity after opportunity to believe that with God we can begin to help God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do not lose heart. We are a part of the feast of God's coming kingdom. Do not lose heart. Amen?